text for our message is from Luke chapter 4, verses 22 to 30. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Amen. Uh, good to see everyone virtually and in person. Uh, with this uh, third message uh, on Luke 4, 14 to 30, we conclude our little uh, series on self-understanding uh, through Jesus's engagement uh, with the people of his hometown of Nazareth. Um, I submit uh, self-understanding uh, is an important uh, aspect of living um, not only a happy life, uh, but the right life before God. Uh, much of the scriptures uh, seek to lead us to uh, God-pleasing conduct. Um, the Bible constantly challenges us uh, to change any ways that do not honor God and in order to know what kind of change is necessary, uh, we should have the most accurate knowledge about ourselves as possible. Uh, we should know what makes us tick, uh, what are our deepest values. Um, we should know our strengths and weaknesses. We should know our flaws and virtues. Now, Jesus being the son of God had a perfect self-understanding and in that sense, um, he's inimitable. inimitable. Uh, nonetheless, I think it's meaningful and helpful uh, to think about how either uh, Jesus arrived at that self-understanding or how he was influenced regarding that self-understanding based on uh, some of the, ver the various sub-themes that we've been exploring. Uh, to that end, um, if you recall the first message uh, in the series examined how the calling of God, a lot of our praise was about being called by God, so reminded of that calling of God upon Jesus, how that dictated, how that informed, how that affected every decision that Jesus carried out. Then last week, um, we uh, looked at how reputation formulated by others, what others thought of Jesus. How did that impact or not impact um, what he said and did? Today's uh, sub-theme is, uh, as you see in the title, uh, patterns. Patterns. I think uh, discerning patterns, tendencies, 
uh, repeatable observations in our behavior and in our thinking, um, be they reactions, impulses, or emotional cycles. Um, understanding this can go a long way in teaching us about ourselves. Of course, we can go in many directions uh, regarding patterns. Um, I'll try to derive some from the text. Um, and the first one, uh, first type is what I'm calling an intentional pattern, okay, an intentional pattern. Now, this is something that a person like, consciously desires to advance in their lives. They're kind of aware that they either have a certain desire, a preference, um, an ability, and uh, they know that about themselves, and they either plan or think about, uh, they, they move this for, they present this. This is about them, and they, it's an intentional pattern that they see. Uh, and, and it might involve thinking about, well, if I do this, what will result, you know, the kind of the outcomes and results which might occur. Uh, the particular intentional action that I want to observe in our story um, belongs to Jesus. I'm going to call it um, his intentional truth-telling. Okay? Um, Jesus knew that he wanted to, and God wanted him to, tell people the truth. Many conversations, uh, many uh, speaking occasions. Right? It was Jesus's want to speak truth to the hearts of the people, whether welcomed or not, yeah, that he believed needed to be informed. Um, in verse 24, uh, beginning part, it says, I tell you the truth, right? That's kind of a characteristic um, phrase that Jesus used. That's actually in the Greek, amen. So when we say amen, we're actually saying like, um, that's the truth, or maybe in slang, true that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what Jesus is saying, I tell you the truth, truly, truly, I say unto you. So he's all about, right, speaking uh, the truth. Um, so he challenged the thoughts uh, and beliefs of the people that he was addressing. In our story, he challenges the people, uh, he challenges their superficial opinion of him and his abilities. He knew deep down they, they did not really trust him. They did not really want to be his followers. And in order to elicit that point, Jesus is, uh, kind of pokes their self-understanding right, to the point where they take offense at him. They're really upset. He quotes, several proverbs or sayings um, which they would be familiar with one was physician heal yourself right you think you're good helping others take care of yourself right? practice what you preach kind of thing and then the other one was no prophet is accepted in his hometown these must have been uh, well known enough for jesus to, to quote them uh, even anticipating the cold reception that he would receive from the people for saying just that but the point that I'm trying to make is not that, okay, yeah, Jesus was intentional about truth-telling. That was his habit. That was his shtick, right? That's what he did. He told people uh, the truth. Um, you know, we too, we're full of, you know, 
things that we do, we know, that we like, and that's who we are. It's our modus operandi. It was Jesus's modus operandi. Oh, but I want to take that a little, extend that a little bit and say uh, what this teaches us or taught Jesus and teaches us about self-understanding is not only that he engaged in it, but that he learned that by telling the truth, people would not be very receptive. In fact, because he told the truth, it sowed rejection, right? It caused, it brought him into dangerous situations. Yet he continued the practice. So his intentionality, his choice of truth-telling revealed or it shed light on what was really inside, right? What was really inside Jesus was not only was he about, that was what he did, but that he knew that this activity, this action would lead to people disliking him, people hating him, people even trying to kill him. And yet he continued the practice. Right, you know, he didn't have to confront his hometown. He could have let, you know, uh, things be. Uh, he could have rode his reputational high. But what he understood was that even if it cost him dearly, right, even if people would misunderstand, people would hate him. He must speak the truth. Right? He always spoke it in love. It wasn't always received that way, but he spoke it, and that's what he was um, committed to. Right? So the biggest takeaway in this uh, kind of section here is not only do we learn about ourselves and these intentional patterns we weave into our lives, but we see even more of ourselves when we deal with the outcomes, the consequences, the ramifications, the reverberations, especially if it's negative. That will really teach you, that will really show me who I am and yourselves who you are. Because it's one thing to like in your mind or in your regular life, in your emotions say, I am like this, I am going to do this, I want to do this. But then when you get pushback, when people don't appreciate what you did, when people don't understand, are you willing to stay the course? Or do we question do I know what I'm doing? Is this really who I want? I am? Is this, you know what I'm saying? It, 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 it kind of tests, it refines, it purifies kind of that understanding. You, you get to peer much more deeply into your heart, into my heart, as we uh, think about what to do, right? Do I continue? Or do I realize that that was just kind of, a fad. That was just something like a wishful thinking on my part. Let me try to give an example. Like, um, you know, sometimes I think uh, there's like a compassion in me, like a desire to help people. And like, I, I sense it when I'm particularly around like older, uh, like senior citizens, like there's a lot of senior citizens in my, my, my residential complex. And so if they're carrying something heavy or if they're walking slowly, like, like a good boy scout, I offer to help them. I carry this for you. And some of them are like mad at me, like, stay away from me, young man. <laughs> but some people are appreciative and stuff like that. 
based on some of those things, I had this intentional idea that I am a kind and compassionate person. I should get into this kind of like, you know, <laughs> this kind of ministry and stuff. And so, you know, I go to soup kitchens, I, you know, hang out with Pastor Kareem and go to graffiti and do free lunch in the park and stuff like that. But when the challenges have come, when it's been inconvenient or when it's been difficult to help somebody, or if I really hang out with Pastor Taylor and Pastor Kareem, I realize I don't have the emotional wherewithal to really be this kind of minister, right? To really like do social work or really have that kind of heart for others, right? Mine is just kind of a low level commitment, just kind of a, an interest but not really, that's not who I am. Or I, I need to really develop myself in order to, to be like that. You guys follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Intentional patterns are good. They're great. Identify them, work on them, develop, you know, make them great. But don't let that, you know, make you think, oh, I am this great person. I'm this decent fellow. I am this, you know, good friend. Or I'm this great Christian. Right? Whatever. Whatever you want your intentional pattern to show about yourself or that you understand about yourself, let it reveal what you really want or, or don't want, who you are or you're not. You're not. Uh, it seems to me that Jesus knew full well that he would be alienating the people of Nazareth by comparing them to the hateful Sidonians and Syrians. He knew that they would not only feel attacked, but that they would be incited to take action against him. He may have even expected them to try to manhandle him. And maybe he had the escape route <laughs> planned all along because he knew being a truth teller would be costly, maybe even uh, take his life. And that's, you know, theologians would say the reason that he was crucified was because he took on, he told the truth to the religious establishment. He told the truth to the Roman oppressors. That's what got him killed. Okay, a second pattern. So we talked about intentional pattern, right? A second pattern uh, I'd like to um, extract from the passage is what I'm going to call a historical pattern. Okay, a historical pattern. Uh, one regarding the Israelites' long tradition of rebellion and unbelief. So in the process of challenging the hometown folk, uh, Jesus cites two examples. Uh, in which certain major prophets of God, uh, Elijah and Elisha, they were not able to, or they did not perform miraculous work within Israel or to the Israelites. The first instance uh, was during the time of Elijah, commonly considered the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. When there was a great famine in the land um, and Israel was suffering greatly from it, God did not send Elijah to grant relief to any Israelite. He didn't go to Israel. He didn't go to an Israelite. But God sent him to a widow in Zarephath, Sidon. Right? The, the Sidonians were considered particularly evil by the Israelites in terms of the sorcery. I think they practiced some of their paganism. Even the notorious queen uh, Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, was uh, of Sidonian heritage. Yet instead of helping someone within in Israel, an outstanding miracle is granted to this foreign widow in terms of food and then later the revival of her deceased son. Yeah, the Israelites were very unfaithful uh, 
during Elijah's tenure. There's that famous showdown, remember Mount Carmel, where Baal, uh, born of the prophets of Baal and uh, Elijah, uh, they face off. And, you know, there Elijah uh, challenges the people, his own people, to stop two-timing God, right? Don't waver between God and Baal. Choose one. Stick to it. The second uh, story comes from Elisha's, uh, no, Elijah's protege, Elisha, right? That was his successor. Uh, the people were similarly disloyal to God during Elisha's time. Uh, Syria was an oppressor nation. So for Elisha to heal Naaman, the top commander of the enemy armies, this would have been considered a national travesty. Yet Naaman uh, displayed obedient faith in contradistinction to the Israelites and therefore was fully cleansed. Naaman was cleansed. And in an ironic twist, the leprosy that had plagued Naaman actually gets transferred to Elisha's servant Gehazi. I remember Gehazi tried to deceptively claim the reward that Naaman offered Elisha, which the latter had refused. So Gehazi gets struck with leprosy, him and his descendants. So that picture showed how the Israelites and like Gehazi lacked faith in God. So uh, using these two, Jesus is squarely implicating the hometown people in this long and sordid history of Israelite unbelief. Uh, indeed, the historical pattern was that God did not work where we would typically expect, for example, within Israel or to the Israelites or within the prophet's hometown. God worked where faith resided even if it was unexpected, even if it was kind of scandalous. Thus the widow at Zarephath, Naaman the Syrian, and the town of Capernaum, not Nazareth, saw the blessed work of God's gracious agency. In reflecting on uh, some of the Old Testament narratives that checkered Israelite history, Paul warns the Corinthians in chapter 10, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. Here's the punchline. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The historical pattern of the Israelites, the OT Israelites, was intended to help the current Corinthians, the current Christians at that time, to not sin, to not fall, to not experience the discipline of God. So historical pattern, I think it's a fruitful one for us to kind of wrestle with. And there can be many traditions and norms that we both kind of consciously and unconsciously inherited, adopted into our own behavior. Uh, this may be like 
some things within the family. There might be even biological connections, cultural, uh, even some of the sinful habits seem to pass on generationally, or at least a tendency to them. Things we learn through observation, um, mimicry. Um, sometimes, like you don't know why you're a certain way, but you like you recognize it among your parents or among your tribe, right, or or among the influences uh, in, in your life. And it's I think important to um, examine them and, and, and try to humbly approach: Is this true in my life? I feel like um, some of the, it's not only recent, but I mean, it's been there all along, but I guess attention to it is a little bit more um, pronounced, if you will, uh, these days. And that's kind of like, you know, kind of the racism, right? That it's been ingrained in us through education, through culture, through history, uh, through family. I, I read a book, um, Told you guys about already how to fight racism how to fight racism by jamar tisby and one of the practical suggestions he has is he tells he, he encourages people make your own personal uh racial history right uh, trace you know your family's roots and um you know think about you know where racism maybe was present or how it got rectified you know and and maybe some of our own kind of struggles, both um, whether it's intentional or maybe it's almost latent and it just kind of you know manifests uh, all of a sudden. Like like think through that, right? And I was with I was reading a book with a couple of pastors, and one of the pastors like he really took that to heart, and he said he looked at that and he found, you know. The, the scourge of race of slavery in his own family tree. He thought about his own kind of some of his natural inclinations um, of kind of things he said, things he joked about, things he assumed. Right? And so it was, it was a very productive exercise, I think, for him. Yeah, I think that's a, a important way, even even a necessary way to kind of benefit to understand, to know yourself yeah, by looking at the historical patterns that may exist. Okay, let's uh, move on to our final uh, example of a pattern. And so um, we've I've provided an intentional pattern, right? 23-24 was about uh, what Jesus truth-telling and what he knew was getting into. Historical pattern was um, the Israelites, how they uh, acted. And now a reactionary pattern, right? Um, the reactionary pattern relates to how the townspeople respond to Jesus's forthright language, right? I'm gonna generalize and possibly domesticate their reaction by calling it or labeling it defensiveness. That's their reactionary pattern. They're defensive. Of course, it's much worse than that because they you know, have this malicious desire or need to punish him uh, by death. 
So despite their initial sunny uh, attitude towards Jesus, when he talks about proclaiming God's favor in almost the very next breath, the people respond to Jesus's challenge with much ire. Um, instead of taking the possibility that what he's saying to them is correct or truthful, they refuse not only to hear his words, but they decide to react violently. It's very revealing, this knee-jerk reaction not only you know pushes back on the uh, truth of Jesus's word, but it manifests in a pattern of anger, right, in violence, and, and I think that's pretty uh, disturbing. Okay, it's it's true that a, there are a number of instances where God, in the law, commanded capital punishment for false prophets or for speaking blasphemy, but I don't think Jesus was guilty of any of these crimes. Now, yet the people wanted blood for their troubles. So it kind of begs the question, why were the townspeople so defensive that they actually took the <laughs> offensive against Jesus? One reason that can be proffered is that they were so personally insulted that their sense of honor demanded they take action. And this could be the case, but it's a bit puzzling, at least, at least to me, a bit puzzling. Although Jesus was assertive and confrontational, he did not say anything derogatory or insolent to them. He was rather a matter of fact. He cited two well-known sayings and two well-known Old Testament accounts, uh, but the, the violent fury right, of the Israelites, that's their reaction. And I think what I'm saying, and I think what I'll support it with the passage is that their violent fury, their defensive reaction had historical precedent uh, as well. So, you know, later on in his ministry, uh, Jesus speaks even more pointedly, he accuses the people of a pattern of kind of quelling the condemnatory voice of God by shooting the messengers, murdering the messengers whom God had sent to rebuke the Israelites. So from Luke 11, verse 47, it says, Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. So I would argue that uh, it wasn't that Jesus uttered something so egregious um, that it warranted executing him, uh, it actually was because this was the reactionary pattern of the Israelites people. When God confronted them through numerous messengers, this is how they dealt with it. This is how they reacted hundreds of years prior, and especially in Jesus's situation, their homicidal <laughs> defensiveness showed up um, uh, in this way. I began to think, well, okay, so that's their, you know, whatever their reactionary pattern. 
why are they so overly defensive? And I thought about like, okay, when am I overly defensive? And for me, I think um, I'm defensive. I'm like reactionary in this way. When someone challenges me or says something that has a grain or a bushel of truth, right? I'm sensitive to it. I already kind of know that I'm a certain way. And if you push the wrong buttons, like, and the closer you are to me, the easier or more, you know, adept you are at pressing those buttons. You know, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to be inflamed because I don't want to be reminded of it. I already know that. And I want to, I'm in denial or I'm trying to fight it. And so I fly off the handle. I overcompensate for my own shortcomings. I think that's what happened. Somehow, what Jesus said struck a nerve uh, to the people of Nazareth. If it was completely nonsensical, if Jesus was like, you know, doing crazy talk, they would have just said, you're crazy, leave us alone, go, go your own way, right? Or um, um, they, they would have argued with him and tried to correct his, uh, his error. But they were enraged because they knew he was right. Okay? Think about your own emotional patterns, your own strong reactions. Right? It's when there is that kind of partial correctness, partial truth, that I think we really get upset. We really, you know, pull out the big guns. We really fight tooth and nail uh, with whoever it is that's reproving us. So the only thing they could do was to sh shut him up permanently because that was their reactionary pattern. Instead of leading to a more therapeutic self-understanding, they just continued to act uh, in this way. So, you know, my exhortation for myself and all of us is, you know, whatever these patterns show, you know, let it help you, let it improve you, let it change you. At least let it shine a bright light on who you are. And hopefully it'll lead to you know, transformation. But be warned, uh, this is not an easy feat. Sometimes every fiber of our being resists um, drawing unwanted conclusions about our pattern of behavior or thinking. Yeah, I've been trying to wrestle with a number of patterns that um, I've seen in my life. Uh, some of them have been like, I think, cover the whole span of my life. You know, like I said, you, you start trying to think about yourself, understand yourself, you see these things, like even from a young age, things have happened. And, and like, there are some that I feel like, oh, I, I dealt with it. it, you know, figured it out when I was 25, but they're <laughs> showing up again uh, now. And uh, it's, it's tough to try to do the groundwork, do the labor um, of it. Uh, one area is, I, I mentioned it in the first message where I did that personality test, you know, what kind of whatever pastor and that kind of stuff. And I came out, despite my effort to try to become like a loyalist or a thinker, which I thought was amazing, I came out to be a systematizer, right? Someone who makes sure things are running and the system works and, you know, and, and, you know, these are just, you know, you have to know what the labels mean and all that kind of stuff, but just 
whatever it means, you can accept that at, at face value. And the, the profile says, if you're a systematizer, you have to be careful that you don't ignore or avoid areas of growth, personal growth and shepherding, right? That you might have a tendency right, to, to like not uh, focus enough on those two areas. So I was kind of grumpy when I read that. <laughs> but you know, I, like I said, I'm trying to understand these patterns and stuff like that. So I started thinking about it more and yeah, uh, I, I came to really struggle with that about how I, I think I do have this kind of need almost to like plan and have structure and, and do all that and uh, systematize. Um, and maybe neglect personal growth and you know shepherding. Like for example, I thought I, I, I kind of was thinking through this, and I go, "This is this is why I'm like this because I want to make sure that there's in something moving forward, some some I, some direction, and then once that is in place, that's strong enough, then I can address all the people problems, right? Because people problems never end, right? And blah blah blah. Uh, you know, I like finite completion of things and so then you know then I can deal with that but what I had to come to admit was you know systematization never ends either you end up doing all that and you miss opportunities and I realized I think I've missed opportunities and I've emphasized in my own like personal conversations I've emphasized like wrong a wrong kind of I've not responded to a situation that God gave me or a, a person uh, gave me, right? So instead of helping somebody uh, through a situation, instead of caring for them, you just in, in that in that local um, context, yeah, I've just been maybe preoccupied with with the system, right? And I've needed to rightfully to apologize for not seeing that pattern in my life and you know, letting uh, problems continue or not helping people when I've had the chance or even hurting people uh, when I shouldn't have. Um, yeah, so I've been trying to change. I've been trying to uh, really wrestle with that pattern, but I think you would you would agree that you know it's hard to really um, get that out to kind of <laughs> extract those kinds of it's almost like a cancer that like is intertwined with the bone or the the veins like you know and, and it's really hard to pull those apart but you know, I'm hoping that through this uh, message series and and through other uh, means I can continue to kind of yeah try to uh, change, repent, improve, right? become uh, the kind of, uh, have a self-understanding, also a self-expression that honors God uh, more. Uh, I always, uh, whenever I'm talking about like this kind of negative, furious reaction, uh, I always try to end with something positive. And I think uh, Acts chapter 2 um, is, is, is an example. So I need to uh, first mention Acts chapter 7, where uh, Stephen, the, the deacon of the church, he is taking on the uh, synagogue of the freedmen, right? They are, they hate what Stephen is saying. He's like, 
marshalling Old Testament scriptures to prove very much like Jesus that the Israelite leaders were murderous and that they refused to listen to God. They were obstinate, right? So he challenges them point blank. And what do they do? Right? They stone him to death. They actually carry out capital punishment. They killed Stephen because he offended them, right? The word, Greek word for furious in Acts chapter 7 is actually the same Greek word for uh, the phrase cut the heart in Acts chapter 2. When Peter is preaching the sermon on Pentecost Day, talking about what God had done through Jesus, how Jesus had come and ministered and preached, and he had been crucified, that he had been put to death for people's sins by the by all of us, it says his listeners, right? The crowd in Jerusalem were cut to the heart. And they say to Peter, what must we do to be saved? They were so broken, so challenged, so um, convicted by Peter's message that they asked, how can we change, right? Their self-understanding became blown up and a new self-understanding came in and that was that they were sinners in need of forgiveness, right? And that's when the church was born. 3,000 people repented and became believers. Same word, right? Different connotations, but furious cut to the heart, right? So I guess uh, one of the patterns maybe we need, I need to develop is that when God's word challenges, when God's people challenges, when life challenges me, instead of reacting defensively, reacting violently, reacting like, I don't care, avoidantly, uh, we should uh, respond humbly. We should react repentedly, how do you hear pronounce the word? In repentance, let's pray. Lord, um, Thank you for this uh, interesting story of Jesus and his uh, neighbors. Um, it doesn't turn out very well. Uh, their ugliness is exposed and Jesus is rejected by them. Uh, yet, I hope that uh, by looking at it, uh, we can find something to help us in our self-understanding issues. Help us to get to uh, the point of the Acts chapter 2 um, believers that when you speak to us, when you uh, are working in our lives, our self-understanding uh, really conforms to that word, to that truth, uh, to the character of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.